Welcome to the Out of Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OutofLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. We are not starting our show with our typical introduction because of the nature of our program for tonight, which is a part two series on suicide, understanding, and healing. Part one is going to focus on individuals who have survived suicide, as well as interviews with their surviving family members and friends. Part two is going to focus on the metaphysical aspects of suicide. We're going to learn about you know, apparently where your soul goes after you die. We're going to have Nancy Dannison back on the program talking about that. And the reason why we are doing this show is I feel it, it's like we're called upon to do it. There's certain shows that we do where they're just, our show is called upon to do it, and we're going to do it. So we have several interviews for you. For those of you out there that are feeling suicidal, I'm so, so sorry for the pain that you are in. I implore you to please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. 1-800-273-8255. Please seek a professional mental health, mental health professional immediately. And we'll bring that number up again. This show is um, it's very tough to do because... You know, I spent about 10 years of my life in a very deep depression, and I walked as close to the plank as I can possibly uh, dare to mention. And for those of you who aren't depressed, who haven't experienced this, let me just tell you what it's like to be that way. It's like you have this huge weight inside you, and it's pulling you down, and the weight varies from time to time, but it is painful and it is so hard to sometimes articulate present to the outside world what is happening inside because you don't even know what's going on you don't understand why you're feeling this way and a lot of these thoughts are running through your mind and I think that when people are are suicidal very depressed you tend to focus so far inward that you lose track of the outside world and how the outside reality is and you forget to lose. You start to lose an impact, um, sight on how you are affecting other people. In my experience, I believe I had something called an ego death, where I had these strong-held beliefs that were forced upon me to be proven false. Where these beliefs that I had for a long period of time, a lot of my beliefs were rooted in organized religion. They're rooted rooted in the way I thought reality was, they were proven false, and I could no longer pretend that they were correct. And, you know, I just accepted it, and I realized it, and it was so painful. And I felt so upset because when those beliefs went away, I invested so much of my energy in those beliefs. And I think that's what happens sometimes with people, people feeling suicidal. Look around and look at what beliefs you have. See if those beliefs are currently being challenged. You know, beliefs come and go, but you are you. You are here. You are not your beliefs. You are not your mind. When you start to go down the metaphysical rabbit hole, shall we say, you come to the conclusion or realization that you are an infinite spirit and your body is kind of like your car. It's a car that you're driving around in and you're getting through this physical reality. So an ego death, again, is when your beliefs just go away. The, the beliefs that you you are not your beliefs. And once those go away, it could be considered an ego death. Countries experience ego deaths, I believe, when 
they collapse and the people there no longer have their, their belief pattern associated with their country. So that's one of them. Another reason why I was very depressed is because I had this incredible sense of hopelessness. I never thought things were going to get better. I did not see my actions as leading towards anything which would bring about a better result. And that was very tough. So when this thing happened, when I walked, when I got to the darkest point, I realized that survival was number one. I could not do something that would harm my family. I love my family so much, and I did not want to do something that would, that would harm them, and I couldn't do it. So what I decided to do is that I decided that I was going to get rid of all my beliefs. I just got rid of every single thing that was not empowering me. And that's something you might want to keep in mind, too. If there is a belief that is powerful, that is helping you, keep it. If it's dragging you down, if it's making you feel guilty or depressed, send it on the high road. Your depression, your feelings of suicide could be something inside of you that is telling you that you're about to make a dramatic change, that there's a perception there that is waiting for you to embrace it but you may be denying it. So keep that in mind too. When I first started going to people for help, one of the first things these doctors were doing is that they were saying, take a pill. Every damn doctor I went to was like, you got to take this pill and that pill. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm not going on the big pharmaceutical industrial complex wheel over here. I want to try to figure this out on my own. And I did. And it is always a work in progress. So keep in mind that if you expand your perception, if you're open to all different possibilities, you have a number of different things at your disposal to improve your situation. I want to also bring your attention that if you are feeling very depressed, you may have a trauma or a repressed memory you're not aware of. That could be a reason for it as well. You may actually have a physical chemical imbalance, and I don't believe that the pills are something that are necessarily going to solve it. It could actually be something to do with nutrition. You could have something else out there that you're not aware of, but we've heard it time and time again, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. It takes one second to kill yourself, one second to physically take yourself out of the game, but every second that you live every second that you choose to live is an affirmation that you want to be here and so far we're on minute seven of this show so you've affirmed several hundred times that you want to live and that is awesome because let me tell you something i want you to live and if you haven't heard this lately if you haven't heard it today or a couple weeks i want to tell you from the bottom of my heart that i love you i love you so much and i don't want you to go i want you to hang around because I'm sure that you're a cool person. And if you die, if you commit suicide, we're never going to meet and drink a beer together. And I, I, can't, think, I can't go through life thinking about that. you, you got to stick around. If there's anything you, for you to hang on to, it's because you want to have a beer with me. And I want to have a beer with you. So please hang on. Another um, thing I want to just uh, tell you about is sometimes when we feel very depressed, we look for a, a savior. We say, well, I need, I need somebody to save me. I need somebody to save me. Well, look in the mirror. The person looking back at you, that is your savior. That is the person who's ultimately going to decide where the outcome is. And coming back to something I just brought up, it takes one second to kill yourself. You realize how powerful it is, 
how much power you have in the tip of your hands that you could actually decide whether or not you're going to physically live or die. That being said, knowing that you have that much power, you can do anything. You have the power to change anything. You don't realize it. you got to believe it because once you believe that you've got that power, you'll start to make those changes. Please, please stick around. Again, I wanted to tell you again, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. We're going to post that number again on our site. There's one thing I forgot to mention earlier is we talked about why you may be depressed. You have a number of different reasons why. Something happened, trauma, you, you can't find the hope, you can't figure out a way out. It may also have to do with the fact that you are a sensitive person, overly sensitive people, people who are considered even star seeds. They tend to pick up energy and other people's energy, so you may be carrying emotions and energies that are not even your own, not even realize it. So please keep that in mind too. So very sensitive people, they, they, they may be more inclined to, to pick up these things. Again, please stick around. Please, please stick around. <laughs> I want you to live. I really do. I want you to live so much. I want you to stick around. For those of you out there who have lost a family or friend to suicide, this show is also for you as well. We have other individuals who are going to share their experiences. If there's anything you can take away from it, is that I want you to be okay too. So I'm sorry I was all over the place. This is a, um, again, this is a very tough subject for me to even talk about and for us to do, but our intention behind the show is to hopefully offer people listening a measure of peace and understanding. And from the bottom of my heart, I love you. Please, please stick around. You'd be surprised at what you can do in this life incarnation. Joining us now is Elizabeth Cermak. She survived a suicide attempt and a close family member of hers also committed suicide. However, Ms. Cermak is now a therapist and a life coach, and we can learn more about her by going to her website at yourhighestlight.com. Ms. Cermak, welcome to the program. And what was it like for you? Where were you at your lowest point when you attempted suicide? How did you attempt it? And what was going through your mindset at the time? And Hi, Ryan. Thank Hi. you. Um, yeah, so at the t I, you, we would definitely say that was a low point for me. Um, I, what really, for me, what really um, made me actually go through with the attempt was the fact that I was heavily drinking alcohol at the time. And I, because I always tell people, I tell my clients now, like, if, if you're dealing with anything like this, if you're going through any thoughts where you're feeling like you'd better you're better off not here like drinking alcohol is going to make it so much worse and it's going to make you more likely to do something that you regret so like for me when my my attempt was when I had been heavily drinking and I really was just like in this horrible place where I just didn't see any um just thinking super negatively about myself about life about I didn't see any way out of it okay and were you feeling having these feelings for a prolonged period of time or did they just mainly come up when you were drinking um i would say the feelings 
I, no, I would say I had those feelings for a long time. I would say the feeling of depression I had for, since I could remember almost since probably since I was like 12. Wow. Did something happen to you? Did you experience a trauma, a traumatic event when you were a child? No, I um, am one of those people, I think, who was just, um, life was, I interpreted life in a traumatic way. So, like, I mean, I had a normal upbringing. Honestly, I had a great family, and I am, the way that I interpreted things was hugely traumatic. I think we've all been traumatized in our own way, you know. Um, but, no, I did not have anything, like, in my background like that. Nobody would ever have known it by knowing me because I, I was really good at acting like everything was okay. Do you mind if I ask what, what was your method to, uh, to attempt suicide? Yeah, so I took pills. Okay. And when you realized you had survived, what was going through your mind the first couple of days and weeks? Um, fear. I would say just fear. Fear is a feeling. I'm a, I do um, cognitive. I do a lot of, um, with my clients I work with, identifying feelings and thoughts. So I would say I was feeling a lot of fear. Um, and my thoughts were just, I can't believe I did that. I was able to see, just appreciate. I, I don't know. I think afterwards I was able to appreciate like my niece. I had this little niece at the time. Well, she, I still have her. She was little at the time. And just <laughs> being with her, like being with my niece as they were little, they were um, probably, I don't know how old she was, probably five at the time. My other one was like two and they were, they were really healing for me just being around them going to their like activities like that's something that really healed me honestly and like being appreciative like I wanted to be there for them like I didn't want to be this person who I just wanted to be there for them okay so you think that that was a motivating fact was that was that part of your recovery you know just curious yeah did you also begin to look at your life in a different way did you begin to examine why you may have come to that conclusion or did you begin to kind of make yourself your own case study yeah totally I mean I was able to see I was eight yes definitely um I was able to look at my life and just be like what am I doing like I could see that I was just doing things to make everything worse (laughs) and so I was able to yeah totally appreciate what I have and then make different choices from then on out I did go to therapy and um, I took medication for a while, but, you know, I, um, like I said, it was, you know, I believe I also, one of the main things that helped me as well was I found, um, like spirituality, like meditation, mindfulness, and that sort of thing, um, really, um, helped my recovery. I would say even more finding a purpose in life, you know? Okay. So did it adhere to any form of spirituality? Did you kind of just throw yourself into it? Well, I actually started studying A Course in Miracles, which is like, it's, it's like a psychological mind training. So it's not a religion. It's, um, it just really trains your mind to identify with a thought system based on love instead of, instead of a thought system based on fear. And if you were to speak with somebody who's very suicidal right now, mm-hmm. what advice would you tell them based on your own experience? Um, you know, I know they might have heard this, but that suicide is a temp- is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, that how they feel is temporary and that it passes. And that, you know, um, 
you can't even imagine. Like people who are suicidal, they don't understand. They're coming from a perspective where they're really only thinking of it's not it's not selfish. I don't look at it as selfish, but it it could sound like it where they're thinking of the, themselves and like how horrible their life is, but they're not able to see the bigger picture. They're not able to see the forest for the trees. So like just like the way that it affects your whole the way that it would affect people in your life, you have no idea of knowing how horrible that would be. So is that something that people should keep in mind that even if they, they don't love themselves for the time being or if they're having a hard time grasping the situation, they should keep in mind how they're affected? Because it, you, you reveal that you know a close member of your family committed suicide. What did that do to your family? Yes. So, I mean, so that's what's so interesting. And you know, why I'm into the, all the spirituality is because things happen in our lives and you're like, there's no explanation. Like this is not, this could not be logically understood. Um, but my, so that my niece who helped me through that, that th the weekend after it happened, I actually went on a trip with them, my niece and my brother, and she like reached out to my hand in the middle of the night. And I was like, why in the world would I ever leave her? But what's so interesting is a few years later, her mom committed suicide, my sister-in-law. And so it was like, oh my gosh, it was, it was seriously the worst thing. They, they actually relate it to like going through a Nazi con concentration camp, the pain that your family goes through when that happens. So, I mean, we're just weird. I didn't know my sister-in-law at the time was depressed. Like I didn't know any of that was going on. So it's just how, you know, these things in our lives just affect us and how there's no way, you know, I feel like I was put in their life for a reason. And, um, you know, so there is a bigger purpose. I forget what your question was now. I'm sorry. No, I'm just asking you how it affected your family. You said it, it felt oh, everyone. Yeah. So did everyone in your family what to begin to talk and try to see if it's something they said or did that actually caused oh, it? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh, yes. And that's the nature of it. Like I have my degree in psychology and my master's in counseling and everything. And um, you know, I learned that about suicide. Like, okay, everybody blames themselves. Everybody thinks there's something. So it's good that it, you know. So you have to tell your clients if if you have a client who had a family member who attempted suicide or who committed suicide, you have to make sure that, you know, assess the guilt. And I didn't know until you actually experience it, you don't realize, but anybody who even talked to her, anybody who was remotely in her life blamed themselves, wow. thought they could have done something different. I mean, it was like everybody, so you can imagine the ones who are closest to her really blamed themselves, you know, but, um, but it was, it's the nature of what happens. Everybody blames themselves. Even my niece, at the, she's old, you know, she's, um, older now she's 21 and she's going through this thing where she's even thinking if I would have, she was 10, you know, she's even thinking if I was, if I would have, um, been different, maybe she would have stayed with me. You know, why didn't my mom love me enough to stay here? So it's just like, that is the nature of it. And it's it, the thing is that nobody did anything wrong. My niece obviously didn't do anything wrong. It was my, it was my sister-in-law, you know, it was what she was going through. It had nothing to do with anybody else. So, in the same token, if you are addressing and talking to a family member, somebody whose friend or family member has committed suicide, what do you tell them? What can you tell them that, that would offer any kind of measure of peace? And also, what should you do? How, how can you console others who have experienced something like this? You know, I think just, I don't know that there's anything you can say um, to console. I think just to be there with them. Um, when it ha when this happened in my family, like you just saw like the love and the community, um, you saw just everything. You just 
having people there, you know, that we're all in this together, we're all in this life together, we're all one. We, it's not, you know, just showing people that you're there and being there for them. It's the best thing that you can do. Miss Elizabeth Cermak, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Again, you can learn more about Cermak by going to yeah. the website at yourhighestlight.com. I love the website name. Joining us now is Tracy Fortner, a 21-year veteran, Nashville firefighter, EMT. And he has a very unusual story. He attempted suicide, and he actually shot himself in the head, but he survived. And we're going to learn all about it. You can learn more about Mr. Fortner by going to his website at tracyfortner.com. Mr. Fortner, welcome to the program. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm very glad I'm here with you to share this. Thank you. Can you please talk about why you were suicidal and how you actually survived shooting yourself in the head? That's, that's incredible. Uh, yes. Let's see. I'll start off by saying I never was a depressed person. I was always a big jokester, the cut up. But uh, during about a two year period, my life got really messed up. Uh, some of it was my fault, some of it wasn't. But I, I had about two handfuls of problems that really worked on me. And PTSD was. One of the big problems, all the stuff I'd seen working for the fire department for 21 years. Uh, then I got mixed up on some medications. I wasn't abusing the medications. I was taking them as the doctor prescribed, but a mixture of them got me. got my wires really crossed up. Uh, my only sibling I have, a brother of mine, he, he was a, a big... Long lasting problem when he disowned our whole family tree. And then I found out about his uh, illegal activity. And I worked with law enforcement for over a year and finally had him indicted. So that was real hard on me. Uh, but it was the right thing for me to do. So I did it. The straw that broke the camel's back for me was my. My soulmate, my wife, Christy, I ended up getting so screwed up on his medications that I got caught up in an affair. And I I just could not forgive myself, even though she totally forgave me. So that was that was a straw that broke the camel's back for me. I couldn't get over that. I thought my life would never, ever get any better, that there was no chance it could get any better. So that's what led me to the day about three and a half years ago. I, I said, I can't go on anymore. Uh, so I walked out to my garage. I swallowed a huge bottle of pills first. And then I, I grabbed the pistol and I shot myself in the head. Now I'll talk about it as much as he won't. So I'll just tell you real quick what happened there, but you I mean, feel free to ask me whatever. Yeah. But, but after I shot myself, I was, as, I was as alert and conscious as I am right now. Uh, 
I wasn't hurting anywhere. Of course, I was quickly covered in blood. Uh, like a long story short on that, I was getting ready to shoot myself for the second time. I had the gun up to my head for the second time, and right before I squeezed the trigger, God spoke to me. And his exact words were, Tracy, you should be dead right now. You're not. Put the gun down. I have much bigger and better plans for you. Wow. So I had no choice but to put the gun down. Since then, fast forward to now, three and a half years later, my life is awesome. And I've, I've learned so much. I've learned about I've learned about seasons that they change. You know, you got to hang in there through the tough season because they will change. They will get better. <laughs> Since then, I've written a book telling my story. It's entitled Living Proof. Uh, the book's written. Me and my wife, Christy, are looking for a publisher. Found out that that's the hardest part about writing a book is finding a publisher. So anyway, if anybody can help us with that, we welcome the help because uh, I feel that my book can really help a lot of people that's either having suicidal thoughts or that that have even lost loved ones to suicide. I myself have lost several loved ones to suicide, so I know I know that hurt as well. But so yes, the book's written. I hope to get it published soon. Uh, I've also this is totally opposite of what happened in the garage that day but here we are three and a half years later and i've started a, a little new business uh as a character artist i didn't know i had that talent but it just like happened out of nowhere now i'm doing these funny drawings for people and I should, cheering I them, cheering them up well i i can't believe that you actually survived shooting yourself in the head so you said it's good to hang in there, but what advice would you recommend to another person aside from hanging in there who is suicidal? What, what was the what is the biggest reason why a person should hang on from your perspective? Well, I, mean, I could, let's see, I could go on and on about that, but as quickly I'm going to say, uh, for one, it's it's not your life to take. Uh, it's God's life. Other than that, I mean, you, you got to have hope. You got to hold on to hope. Uh, you ha- need to have faith that things will get better. Uh, you know, it's like back to those seasons. I mean, you know, there's seasons. You know, you're going to have bad seasons, but just, you know, stick it out through the seasons so that, you know, you too can see. You you too can eventually see God's plan unfold for your life. Okay, and so Forda, because you were able to attempt suicide, do you think that if a person has a capability of attempting suicide and ending their own life, that they actually have the same capability of turning their life around? That it's uh, it's an act of you know it just takes a, a 
an action with a plan? Is it the same type of frequency, do you think, in any capacity or comparable? Well, you know, I, I can't speak for anybody but myself. Uh, but as for myself, honestly, I, after my suicide attempt, I didn't do I didn't do anything to try to make my life better. I didn't do nothing. I just, I knew that God spared my life for a, for a reason or many reasons. And he did everything for me. I didn't do nothing. Uh, all of those handfuls of problems I had there, I mean, they're minute to me now. Uh, I don't have any depression. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm as happy as I can be. I mean, it's just it's awesome. everything about it. Everything about it is a miracle. There was many miracles that happened uh, since that day in my garage. Many miracles. And before then, I, I didn't believe in miracles. Uh, I didn't believe in miracles. But I've seen so many miracles happen in my life since that day. And I've done a couple radio interviews. I've given my testimony uh a couple times in front of groups, churches, and as of as of today, I've had seventeen different people have told me because I've talked to you and because I've heard your story, I'm not going to end my life like I was fixing to. <clears throat> yeah, and it is. <clears throat> it really is. It is awesome. <laughs> and you know if. Just one more life lost to suicide is entirely too many. Mr. Tracy Fortner, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story, which is, quite frankly, amazing. To learn more about Mr. Fortner, please go to his website at tracyfortner.com. That's T-R-A-C-E-Y, Fortner, F-O-R-T-N-E-R.com. Mr. Fortner, thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, and I hope there's... I hope something I said could help anybody out there in any way. Thank you. Joining us now is Shelley Lawson. She is an individual who's attempted suicide twice. Ms. Lawson, thank you so much for coming on our show and for sharing your stories. Can you please talk about your experiences? How did you attempt suicide? Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome, and I appreciate you being so courageous coming on to share this experience. What were your two suicide attempts? Why did you do that, and how did you? How have you progressed and grown afterwards? I come from a very, very controlling environment, and um, just I think I was getting tired and hopeless and helpless. And to be honest, and I've thought this ever since the first attempt, is that the only reason I even went through with that attempt is I didn't know that there was really help out there. I didn't know that that that's what mental hospitals were for. I just... It just, um, it never occurred to me that that that's why most people go in is for depression. And if I had known that, things 
would have turned out differently. So (laughs) it's been really important to me to stress that that is there for people that might be considering it, you know? Um, And a lot of people have, yes, there are bad experiences that happen in hospitals, but for the most part, it's actually nothing like you see in the movies. And it's like, it's actually more help than harm most of the time. And a lot of people don't know that because they only know what they see on TV, which is like completely way over dramatic compared to what it's actually like. Okay, you know? So since you have attempted suicide, do you, what, what path are you currently on? What can you tell someone who is currently contemplating suicide? What should, what is the most important thing that they should know? Well, what can I tell someone that is contemplating it? Um, just, you know, it's better to take yourselves out of the situation that you're in that's causing you the pain than to take yourself out of the equation, period. Because then you don't get to experience the actual good things that can come from your life, you know? Ms. Shelley Lawson, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. You can learn more about Shelley Lawson by going to her website at ShelleyLawsonsWorld.com. Ms. Lawson, thank you so much for sharing your experience with us, and we wish you an abundance of love and peace. Joining us now is Elisa Raimundo. You can learn more about her by going to her website at aliciaraimundo.com. Ms. Raimundo, thank you so much for being with us today. My understanding is that you have survived a suicide attempt and you've lost 14 friends and family members to suicide. I cannot imagine what you have gone through. I'm so sorry for the pain and suffering you have gone through. Can you please talk about what you've gained from that experience, what you've learned about it? I mean, I can't Mm. imagine what it must be like to lose 14 people to that. And it's, um, suicide is such a tricky thing and it's such a misunderstood thing. So many people um, who experience a lot of suicide or have attempted to take their own life, um, really what they're trying to do is they're, you know, they're not well and they're dealing with oftentimes mental illness and they're just trying to, um, you know, reach out for help. They're just trying to get the support that they need. And these experiences, so often I hear people say things like, oh, it's selfish or I would never do that to my friends and family. But when you're in that space, it's a space of thinking that you are a burden to everyone and that you are not worth their love and care and affection and figuring this out together. And so it's easy to think that the solution is to remove yourself and that it would be easier on your friends and families to remove yourself. And it is a it is a hard and scary thing when you think about all the different parts of your brain that are built to protect you. Um, and I think that was the scariest thing for me when I was experiencing thoughts of suicide for the first time was, you know, <laughs> there's all those viral videos of 
of uh, grandmas lifting up cars to save a baby underneath it, but my brain didn't like me, and it was terrifying. And wow, so you said you like you, but your brain didn't like you? No, I, like, I, you know, I liked me in theory, but it was weird to have your brain give up on you, you know, like to have your brain be like, maybe, maybe you don't deserve to be here. And it was a terrifying part of that because there was still a little voice in my head and it was why I'm still here today. That was challenging that, but the sicker I got, the quieter that voice got. And when, when you're in a community where there's not a lot of mental health services and you don't have, and you're trying so hard with everything you have to keep yourself alive, but there's nothing feels like it's working. It's easy to, it's easy to feel like you're not worth it. And it's why having conversations like this one, even though it's dark and scary and uncomfortable for people is so important to let people know that they're not alone and to let people know there's people out there um, like myself and like so many others who want to talk to them about what they're going through and can show them that going through this and figuring this out doesn't mean you're weak, doesn't mean you're broken. It means you need help and, and that you have the strength in that help and admitting it and asking for support. Right. So compare it. I mean, you think about what was the main reason why you attempted suicide? Matter of fact, how did you attempt it? Also, were there other mm -hmm. common reasons why the 14 other people in your life committed suicide or attempted what were the reasons behind? For me, it was that I was, um, I was a young kid. So I was 13 years old and I, um, I didn't have any friends. I didn't really have a supportive community. I didn't have mental health resources to help me figure these things out. I was kind of on my own and, you know, I was very aware of my life being, uh, being a kid of parents who worked very hard to give me a better life than they had that I, that I was spoiled and that I had all these things that would have made other kids happy, but wasn't making me happy. And it was just, and then feeling so alone and so broken um, was the reason that I, I tried to take my own life. And I'm very glad that they found me and that uh, they got me to the support that they needed. But, you know, a lot of other people um, weren't that lucky. And the first thing I remember when I woke up in the hospital was, how incredibly lucky I was that I didn't lose my life. And so many of my friends and family, like you mentioned, 14 of them. I can't imagine you know, that. I, what Was there an underlying thread? Was there something common that, they, that there was a couple of things that you identified as telltale signs that somebody, that they were going to commit suicide? So a lot of it comes from me being like me asking for support in a lot of communities online or in my community and, and finding a lot of other people going through the same things that I was and, um, I think what it is is just a a lack, a complete lack of mental health resources, of people wanting, getting out there, wanting to support about it, but needing resources that are underserviced and underfunded and just don't exist. And you know, as much as you can have a loving family and you can have support with each other, like if you don't have the doctors and the therapists and stuff to take it to that next level, there's it can get really hard to 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 get through it. And yeah, I think that and being you know, and and having a lot of folks in my community who were struggling to find work and struggling to find um, that definition of success that we all chase after, I think that was kind of the collective factor of it. And I'm hoping now that we talk about mental health and now that we fund services better, that more nobody's ever going to have to go to that. Like there were years where I went to more funerals and birthday parties, and that's I so, so sorry. Work in the field because I never want that to happen to anyone again. Okay, and last question I have is, 
What is one piece of advice that you would offer to someone who is suicidal and one piece of advice that you'd offer to someone who is a surviving member of suicide? I would tell the person who is suicidal that you're not alone, that as much as you feel like there's no one who's ever been as broken as you, as crazy as you, as as distressed as you, that there's all so many other people out there and that it's, as much as that voice is telling you in your head that you don't deserve help and that you don't deserve to ask for support, that you do, you deserve to ask for help, you deserve support, and you are not a burden. You are loved and supported, and there are people, whether they are strangers or your friends and family, who want to help you get through this. Um, And that, you know, you're feeling like this, and it's a big and scary feeling, but as much as you can, ask for help, ask for support, and if someone turns you down and and doesn't give you the support that you want like that keep keep going and keep trying I know it takes so much energy that people don't have and for people who lost someone to suicide it's not your fault it's a complicated confusing and hard thing and we haven't figured it out yet and so sometimes we lose people and that sucks but it's never one particular person's fault and I know so many families want to blame themselves because that means that they can do something to stop it from happening again, but it's not their fault. And it is complicated and hard and just support and love each other at this time. And, and you'll get through it. It's Alicia Raimondo. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Alicia has spoken at done many Ted talks. You can see her online. I mean, I'm very impressed with your background and I'm so thankful that you're able to make the time and see your very busy schedule to be with us. To know more about Alicia, please go to her website at Alicia Raimondo. I'll spell that for you. R-A-I-M-U-N-D-O.com. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you. Joining us now is Corey Laditis. She's a coach, author, and speaker. Several years ago, she lost her long-term post-divorce partner, partner to suicide. She's going to share that story. You can learn more about Ms. Laditis better go to her website at Coriello.com, and that's C-O-R-R-I-E-L-O.com. Ms. Lagaitis, thank you so much for being with us today. No problem. And I'm sorry uh, for not getting your your name, last name, right, the first. (laughs) That's fine. Don't worry about it. Can you please talk about your experience in losing someone very close to you to suicide? What impact did it have on you, and what did you learn from this experience? Sure. So um, actually, it wasn't a few years ago. It happened relatively recently. Um, So I lost my um, long-term post-divorce partner. So the the guy I fell in love with after I got divorced and went through everything. And I thought that finally, you know, things were on the up and up for us. And, you know, I had things to look forward to. But I lost him very suddenly and unexpectedly last June to suicide. So sorry. Yeah, no problem. What were the circumstances surrounding his suicide and what was the immediate impact to you and to your family and to his family Mm -hmm. uh well it was it was unexpected he had his own demons which you know many people do you know who are battling um you know mental illness or addictions you know those sort of things so i mean i the, the signs more or less were there as i look back in hindsight sleep patterns were off Um, He wasn't handling stress well. He was stopping taking care of himself. But all told, 
you know, he was still getting the help that he needed. He was still seeing a therapist, you know, he was still, you know, kind of working through his issues. So it really, and everything was kind of stemmed from stress at work. Um, you know, and the thing that surprised all of us, my, myself, his family, everyone, is it kind of came out of the blue. No one ever would have anticipated it. Wow, must be so awful. Because it seemed like he had it under control. You know, it's it, to me, you know, a part of it too was, you know, we were dating a little over a year at that point, and you know, some of the changes in the personality, I kind of viewed it as, you know, it was just kind of the honeymoon phase was over. Um, you know, he was going through some difficulties. He had just changed careers, um, you know, so that was stressing him out. So it just seemed like standard everyday stress. It didn't seem like anything, you know, that would justify doing what he did. Was there anything reflecting now that you think might have been a, um, a red flag is there anything that maybe stands out in your mind as something where if somebody else was doing it now you'd probably think differently about it uh yeah i mean there were a few signs there um in particular his his drinking went up big time uh especially in like the month before um like i had said he had had issues sleeping in the past you know with insomnia and uh those sort of things and that ramps up right before you know these when you um you know, like myself, after everything had happened, I got very, very educated on, you know, suicide and suicide loss. And these are all, you know, typical behaviors that are common that you see before somebody might consider doing something like that. Um, his personality almost changed, you know, which, again, I had, you know, attributed to the change in his position at work and just stress. Um, you know, but he was a bit more negative, um, a little... Um, bit more irritable, you know, but all stuff that, you know, as somebody who is stressed out with something, it's not something you would view as overly alarming. Got it. Now, this considering happens, the situation. what does this, what impact does this have on you and how have you begun your, your healing and how have you been healing from this experience? Well, the whole experience actually really made me kind of reevaluate my life and what I wanted to do with it. Cause it kind of goes to show, you know, exactly how short life is and how can in the blink of an eye. So, you know, leading up to this point, I thought that I had met, you know, my, my new life partner, you know, we had just even weeks before had talked about, you know, we wanted to have another kid, we were going to move in together, get married. Um, you know, our children got along really well. So I mean, everything was pointing towards a specific path that we both had thought that our lives were going to take. I will ultimately never know, you know, why he chose to do what he did. You know, there's that saying, um, you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, so, you know, I believe I, I don't know what he felt in that morning that he felt that he had to do it. But ultimately, I can't change what happened. Um, but it kind of put into perspective for me how quickly things can change and, you know, made me reevaluate my life in ways, you know, as far as my career goes. I was working at a um, corporate career, which had me away from my son. A lot. And so I, I changed positions. I got into coaching immediately after and um, just, um, you know, really developed a passion towards, you know, working with people um, through various types of adversity. You know, my late boyfriend's suicide was just one element of a very, very difficult four years in my life, which started between, you know, having a miscarriage. I was in an abusive marriage. Um, you know, I ended up getting a divorce and then, 
you know, surviving the suicide of my partner. So if there is anything that I learned through all of it, it's, you know, how to be resilient and how to show people how to do that. And I decided that, you know, these different um, challenges weren't put in my path without reason. You know what I mean? I was challenged in this way because there's something that, you know, I feel that I can, I can give to the world. And I was more or less, you know, wasting my life away in corporate America. I wasn't seeing my child. I wasn't making a difference. Um, so it completely changed my life. And in a way, I, I'm grateful for him um, because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today, you know, had what happened didn't happen. And what advice would you offer a, to a person who is contemplating suicide and also to a family member or friend who has lost someone close to suicide? Sure. I'm actually going to recommend the same thing for both, um, which this is something I talk about on a regular basis. I actually started a podcast surrounding it. Um, but I think a huge factor as to why there is such a stigma on mental health and mental health awareness is that people don't talk about their problems. You know, they feel that others won't understand what they're going through. They feel they're going to be judged. So whether you're in the position that you're either contemplating taking your own life or if you lost a loved one, you know, to suicide, the very, very first thing, no matter what your adversity is, and my belief in this has helped me through various paths and challenges in my life, would be to find a support group that's specific to what your challenge is. There are so many, you know, free ones that are available. Um, at least I could speak, you know, throughout the U.S. I'm not sure internationally, but, um, you know, you could find, you know, mental health support groups, anxiety, um, you know, people with financial troubles, um, divorce is a popular one, even suicide loss. You know, I myself, you know, as part of my healing, the, one of the very first things I did maybe a week or two after the loss was I found a local suicide loss survivor group, you know, where every other week I can go and talk to people about this unique experience that we shared. It's the club that we didn't want to be a part of. But by being able to actually speak and articulate what happens and what our feelings are surrounding it, it helps us better process and understand, you know, the situation and move past from it. So that would be the biggest thing that I would, I would suggest on both fronts. It's Corey Legatis. I want to thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your perspectives. You can learn more about Legatis by going to your website at Coriello, C-O-R-R. IELO.com. Thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Joining us now is Dan Keller. Mr. Keller experienced a tragedy in the past year with suicide. Mr. Keller, welcome to the program. Can you please share your experience with our listeners? Sure. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, and thanks for doing this. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm part of this unfortunate club, it seems, um, that nobody ever wants to belong to. Uh, on September 3rd, 2017, my 20-year-old son, Jamie, uh, out of the blue, took his own life. Uh, he was just about to start his junior year at Western Michigan. Uh, he was living in a house with uh, several friends, and uh, he had taken a class during the summer. He had recently set up his bedroom with new furniture. Um, you know, this was a kid, he, he had a lot of friends. He was an athlete. He was also very creative. Um, he, you know, he, 
gave no indication that this was going to happen. You know, he drank and he smoked pot like like so many college kids these days. But there was nothing beyond that. There was no uh, drug abuse uh, that would raise serious red flags. And I was uh, I was actually in Maryland visiting a friend, and I got this terrible phone call on Sunday. Uh, my son called, and he he said Jamie has shot himself, and he's, he has died. Um, I uh, obviously um, it's um, I would say it, it's it's so unreal that uh, it takes a while for you to make the connections. Um, you know, certainly first off, you're worried about. You know, uh, his mother, his his brother, you know, his friends, um, you're, you're, you're trying to take care of the immediate things first. If, certainly, I was interested. I had to get home, um, and I had to talk to everybody, and then we had to figure out what, what the hell happened. Um, this was a, a Sunday when we heard. I got home on Monday. Um, that Wednesday, my son and I, we took a car to Lansing, Michigan. He was in, at Michigan state when this, he was at Michigan state with his friends. Uh, he went to Western Michigan, but he was at state. So we drove to Lansing to get his car and to get all of his personal effects and, to, to meet with the police officer there to see what the hell happened. Then we went to, um, the group of friends that he was spending time with, he had, he had gone to a John Mayer concert the night before. Um, he, he asked his friends, you know, he was like, guys, I want to sleep in. So don't wake me up too early on Saturday morning. Um, the, uh, at Michigan state, it was the first home game for their football team. So there were, there was all kinds of activity and there were a lot of parents up there. And I, I know all the guys, I know all the parents. I used to coach most of them in, in hockey. And uh, so a lot of my friends um, who had kids up there were there. And one of them went um, there. He was like, where's Jamie? And uh, the guys were like, Oh, he's upstairs sleeping. So my friend went up to say hello to him and knocked on the door and Jamie answered and he was typically, you know, he was always polite. He goes, Oh, Hey, Mr. Leonard, how are you doing? Uh, I'm just sleeping in. I got to go home today. I can't stick around. And you know, that was it. So he told his friends he was going home or he told his friends he was going back to um, Western Michigan. He told us he was staying at Michigan state. Um, and then he, he went to a hotel room in Lansing and, and, and took his life. So, so I met with the boys and I was like, what the hell happened? Um, and they couldn't, nothing. It was just, Jamie was being Jamie. He was fine. He was at a concert. He was having fun. How did it affect the family in the short term? And how has it affected your family? Uh, it's, it, it was, it's like a punch in the stomach. It's like losing a limb. Um, it's like, uh, all these cliches that you hear, it's like a part of you dying. Um, the, the, for the first year, my, my, my wife, my ex-wife, we're, we're, we've been divorced for a while. My, my ex-wife was, didn't want to talk about it. In fact, um, she on a few occasions had asked her mother and father to leave the house because she wanted to be alone. 
Uh, and we're, I'm still very close with my in-laws, even though we went through a divorce. I'm very close with them. I spend holidays with them and everything. So, um, so, so, you know, that's, this is, this is the mother and, uh, um, obviously where everybody's concerned about her, um, mothers have a, a special relationship with their children, you know, even different than a father. Um, so we were all worried, but she shut down, she shut down for a whole year. She refused to see any therapist. She she refused to believe that Jamie had had somewhat planned this. He had planned it. Okay. Um, he she thought he may have had some sudden onset crisis or something. Um, well, some after a year though, she's 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 been in therapy. Uh, my we were all looking after my son. Um, he seemed to be taking it well. He sought he sought therapy. Uh, me personally, um, I sought therapy. I went to a survivor's. This is within two weeks of it happening. I had to do something. Just it just so happened that September, I guess, is National Suicide Awareness Month, and there was a march and there was a suicide awareness group, and so I was busy doing all these things. I. I I didn't know what else to do because uh, I'm single currently. I live by myself and my dog and I didn't want to just sit home alone, you know, cause I, I didn't feel like that was, I didn't, I couldn't do it. So I guess that was my way of coping with it. Um, and when I you, guess um, when you're thinking about, I mean, you're talking about how, how this had a dramatic impact. You said your son at this point. He seemed like he was a regular, regular normal kid. What he was? What, yeah. what did you start to realize later that maybe there were some things that maybe you didn't see at a first glance? Was you, you said that this thing was planned. Did he leave any type of note? Did you ever get any kind of indication as to why he did it? Uh, we have no indication as to why, but he did leave a note. The note basically said, um, you know, hey, you know, this was to his roommates. He goes, hey guys. Uh, Rent should be paid up. Uh, if you need to cover any expenses, just sell all my stuff. You know, he had guitars and computers and all this stuff. Um, he said, uh, I love you all very much. Please don't hate me. He said, uh, this is, it's nobody's fault, but my, he said, I'll leave you with a Led Zeppelin quote. He says, nobody's fault, but mine. And he said, uh, love Jamie. And he also left another room, note in his room that just said, I am so sorry. Um, you know, so I think all of us went back deep into our memories, I suppose, to figure out what happened. Now, now Jamie was a kid that he was, he was wired differently from the beginning. He was, I guess, he was never diagnosed with that, but he was probably ADHD. Um, I know we had a lot of problems in, in school with teachers and he was just a, a whirling dervish of a kid. You know, he was just nonstop. Uh, he had a stutter. Um, he, um, you know, kids started teasing him about his stutter but Jamie was the type where he had this—he had strength like an ant, so he would—he would stand up to these bullies and he would—he would beat them up. So he got in a lot of trouble for fighting at school. But that somewhat endeared him to so many other classmates 
so he had no problems making tons of friends and being popular and, and dating. Um, but we knew something was, was going on there. He was, he was a different kid. I would not say depressed. I'd never thought he was depressed for a minute. Um, but we knew he was wired differently. Let's, let's say that. Um, but he also had a, a long history of concussions. Um, even as a kid, you know, he was bouncing off of furnitures and jumping off of roofs and crashing his bike. And, um, yeah, he was obviously, he was a high level hockey player as well. So I've come to learn so much about CTE and how that can complicate, um, kind of your neural pathways. Right. And so probably reaching at straws right here, but we think, um, you know, big based on, let's call it a learning disability. I think he just got fed up. It, it, it was, it was too tiring for him to try to keep up with everybody else's pace. It's exhausting. But you mentioned that it's in your family, but are there any certain uh, telltale signs now that you see, okay, well, there's certain behaviors that maybe now you, you look at, you say, okay, well, that that's something where now it's unusual, or maybe that's something where if you if you are a parent, yeah, okay. you're observing their child, observe that behavior that maybe it's something you want to look into a little bit more intently. Yes, I would say a risk-taking behavior. He... You know, he would borrow my car. You know, I have a, a, a Cadillac um, CTS. It's it's a pretty nice car. It, whatever, it goes fast. He took it out, and there's videos of him just, you know, doing crazy things with my car and his friends, you know, see how fast they can do, you know, and really risky behavior. Um, he also played hockey um uh, with, with abandon, you know, he, he, you know, he wasn't a big guy, but he played like he was six foot five, two forty, And he was probably, he's, you know, much smaller than that. Um, he didn't care about him. I don't think he c- cared much about his well being. He cared about getting things done. Uh, if that makes any sense. Uh, I would just say risk taking behavior. He also, um, secluded himself from, from, from me, from his mother and his brother, like he would just stay in the basement um, playing guitar or playing video games or watching movies or whatever. And uh, if, it, if if he wasn't alone, he was with his friends. His friends were huge to him, um, which I don't. There's really not a whole lot of, of this that is starkly um, um, alarming, right? Yeah. Well, it- uh, but that's. Yeah, go ahead. But no, this the Mac is if a person is listening right now and they have lost a family member or they have lost a close friend to suicide, what steps would you recommend? What things would you recommend to them as far as the healing process goes, as far as the understanding goes from your own experience? Uh, First, I would say they need to talk to somebody, okay? And Jamie did the right thing. And this, this is, this is hard to say, but in the last couple of months, he goes, dad, he goes, I would like to see, I would like to talk to somebody. I'd like to see a therapist. And I jumped all over that. Okay. Um, I was all over it and I was ready to, to, to set him up. I said, okay, I, I got you all lined up, but Jamie was working two jobs. And when he wasn't working, he was either sleeping or was with his friends. 
and he he like changed his mind. He didn't want to to do to go through with it. Um, but somewhere along the line, he he recognized I got to talk to somebody. Um, he he wasn't comfortable talking uh, to his parents. I mean, he talked he actually talked to me about more about his psychological issues than he did his mother. Um, his mother is not a big believer in therapy and, you know, whatever. Um, but Jamie opened up to me a little bit. And uh, so he, he sought therapy. And all I can say is talking to somebody, uh, getting it out in the open with your parents and a therapist, at least, is so important. And it, But it's so hard for, it seems to me, for boys to do. It seems to me w- girls, women, um, they're more given to sharing their feelings and, and men and boys are not. Uh, it's hard for them. Uh, so I would say any, do anything to, to start to, to help you to open up to your parents or to a therapist. Cause a lot of people, I guess they don't, they don't want to talk to their parents and I get that. Um, but yeah, talking it out for one. Um, Mr. Dan Keller, I want to thank you so much for, for sharing your story, your experience with us. And on behalf of, of uh, myself and all of our listeners we just want to say that uh, we are so sorry for your loss and uh, we send you so much love and compassion we really do uh, hope that um, you heal and good things happen for you and again we are so sorry for your loss we thank you so much for, for being courageous enough to come on our show and share your experience well ryan thank you and thank you very much for doing what you're doing to help uh, shed some light uh, on this issue joining us now is Corinne McDermott. Corinne McDermott lost her mom to suicide. She's been suffering from manic depression. And Ms. McDermott posted something online about Kate Spade, who died of suicide, and she got a tremendous response to it. You can learn more about Corinne by going to her website at havebabywilltravel.com. Ms. McDermott, welcome to the program. Thank you. Can you, can you please explain or talk about what impact it had on your family to lose your mom to suicide, how the how you responded and how the family reacted? Well, I was 17 at the time, so obviously I was young. Uh, I was very fortunate um, at the time to have been living with my grandmother. So, you know, even though, um, even though I was one of the ones that found her, uh, you know, I was living in a supportive environment, oh, you know, not with her doesn't obviously make it any easier, but, um, you know, I had never really, you know, experienced, uh, you know, a pretty, I'd never really experienced the death of someone close to me, you know, I, you know, outside from other grandparents when I was very small and didn't remember. So, uh, it impacted me hugely in a number of ways. Um, uh, you know, I missed a month of school. Uh, I sort of, you know, the long, you know, and in, in, in leading up to it, her mental illness, um, you know, was devastating. But at the same time, I never once in a million years thought that I would have been better off without her, even though I know that's, you know, that was her thinking, uh, you know, and especially now, almost 30 years later, I, I, you know, I wonder how, 
uh, things might have been different with the advances that they have, you know, now in terms of, you know, medical care and medications and stuff. So, you know, it's, you know, it impacts you forever, basically. Um, you know, if your brain is telling you uh, that you think your your loved ones would be better off without you, uh, it's wrong. That is a, that is a symptom of mental illness. And that means that you need help, uh, you know, and then conversely, on the other side of the coin, when you hear people, you know, really harshly judge people who have died by suicide is it's, you know, it's a very selfish thing. They can't understand how they could just up and leave. Um, you know, that's when they should realize that that's a good thing. It's a good thing that you don't understand the level of despair that would cause someone to do this. Uh, and, and you should be grateful that you don't understand uh, and perhaps show a little compassion uh, for those that are left behind and those, you know, who were unsuccessful in their attempt and in hope of getting them help. So if, what would you say would be, how did your mom's suicide permanently change your perception on reality? And Well, you know, I, my perception of reality, you know, it, it really made me realize how, a, how temporary life is, uh, and also how, you know, you know, and I don't mean to minimize my mother's mental illness in any way, shape or form. It was, you know, it was br definitely brutal at times, but it made me realize like how insignificant that is compared to just not being here, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, I'll, I've lived over half my life without her and, you know, at the time, you know, at the time, shortly after it happened in a few years, you know, I missed her so much. And now I'm at the point in my life where I, you know, I feel sad in a different way. I feel sad for how much she's missed, you know, the, you know, the beautiful family that I've, you know, that I've, you know, I've been blessed with, but I also kind of feel like I've earned, uh, you know, that, you know, she would have loved and, you know, they would have loved her so much. Uh, and if you, somebody's listening right now and they are contemplating suicide, what advice would you offer them? What would you tell them right now, based on what you've known on first-hand experience? That there is absolutely no way that your loved ones, your your children, your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your friends, uh, would rather that you weren't here. And, and if your brain is telling you otherwise, it's playing tricks on you and you need to get help uh, because it isn't true. You know, there is, you know, there is, you know, I, it sounds really glib uh, and really easy to say that there is hope and there is help because, you know, sometimes it's difficult to find that hope. And it's also very difficult to find help sometimes. And even if you do have help, it's not easy. The process isn't easy, but it's so, so, so worth it. Uh, in a million years, never once, you know, in the 30 years since I've lost my mom, never once have I felt that she made the right decision. Ms. Corinne McDermott, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, very courageous for you to do that, and very courageous for all of our featured guests to share these uh, stories. You can learn more about Ms. McDermott by going to her website at havebabywilltravel.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Joining us now is Kate Rees. She's an individual who has experienced suicide multiple times in her own family. 
Ms. Fries, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and uh, for courageously coming on our program to share your experience. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Ms. Reese, can you please explain and tell us what types of suicide, the suicides that have happened in your family and how did your family initially react when they first occurred? How did it change your family? Sure. Um, well, the two initial instances, um, I, it was when I was born and then a year later. So I never... Um, I never even really knew these people. There was my uh, my aunt, first of all. Um, so 48 years ago, it was known that she had uh, tried committed su- committing suicide a number of times. She was in an unhappy marriage. Um, had two great kids. I don't know too much details about it. I know my mom was really working with her. She was living with my mom. Um, and she killed herself. She kept trying, and so one time she was successful. Um, And then a year later, my aunt's mother, so it would be my grandma, um, committed suicide. And I didn't find out about any of these until um, probably high school. Um, My mom, because this was back then. This is, you know, nobody talked about these things back then. I thought, that they passed away from cancer. Um, so eventually I learned about it and my mom has never trusted doctors. Um, she finally has come around, but she blamed the doctors for not treating her mom and her sister uh, correctly or efficiently. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not exactly sure how much of that is actually um, that they could take any of the blame, but I think that's an easy outlet to put your your grief and your negativity is just blame the doctors. And recently, in the last five years, you also lost another mm-hmm. family member. Yeah, um, less than a year and a half ago, my nephew, my brother's son, who was 20 years old. He uh, just started his junior year at college. He went away to school and um, that Labor Day weekend, as in he was just there, you know, he just started, went there a week and he killed himself. So how does that, I mean, knowing that you in your family, this has happened on a couple of occasions, what does that do? How do, how do people, how does that affect people? How do the, I mean, does it, does it keep, is everyone a lot more on the edge? It's mental health taking with a lot more vigilance. I mean, what does it, what does it do to, to a family that um, this has happened and how does it, how does it affect others or how you observe this affecting others? So it has definitely affected our family. Um, even before my nephew, um, I know I, myself, and having teenagers, especially, and having kids that would have ups and downs, you know, they'd have a breakup that was traumatizing with one experience where I was making sure I was watching for signs from my son that he didn't, well, because he, he made a comment, actually. He did make a comment to somebody else that was a big red flag. And so I jumped on it. 
I didn't let this go as, oh, he was just, you know, worried at that time. Um, and it ended up just being, you know, it was handled and he, he came through that all okay. Um, cause I, you know, we, we all know that this is in that it's hereditary, that depression is hereditary. Um, so I knew that that, that was a possibility. And then with my nephew passing, yes, this has really definitely raised, um, the amount that we talk about things. Um, and even, okay, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I can't, I can't remember, I can't remember the specifics, but I remember hearing something that somebody else said, and I remember sharing that with the mom. I can't remember what it was, but just so put the, put the information in their hands. You know, I don't know if they had um, any kind of depression in the family or not, but you just don't um, let things slide. You, um, you address things, you get people talking. Teresa, in your experience, how can you, what are some of the ways that you can tell if a person is just saying a comment in passing or if they generally are having concrete thoughts about killing themselves? What are some of the indications that you would kind of um, gauge from your experience that would lead you to indicate that well, somebody is very serious about this? Sure. So part of the mental illness that is depression is keeping it to yourself. Um, so they don't share things, in ge- you know, generally. They don't. So that's what makes it so horrific. You, can, you don't know. Um, and that's why you hear these examples, as in my, my nephew's case and other people, that things seemed great. Um, in hindsight, when you look back, then you can see a couple red flags. Um, and one thing my brother has learned, my brother was the, my nephew's father, um, that is typical of um, people that are contemplating suicide is that they know that they're going to eventually try. They just don't know when. So anytime you saw my nephew, um, when he was, when we were leaving, he would hug you and tell you he loves you every time, even, you know, even as this high school boy. Um, so we always thought it was just, he was just so sweet to do that. But really we think now in hindsight, it was because he knew he might not see us again. Wow. I know. It's, um, it's quite a, maybe think about something is that, a lot of people, I guess, when they present themselves to the public and or if they present it to family and friends, they seem like everything's fine. But do you think that everything's fine? Do you think that there's yeah. a pressure, or I'm trying to think about why would there be a pressure for people to present themselves like everything is fine? I was wondering why is there um, maybe is there, is there a stigma associated with revealing the fact that things are not okay? I'm just curious why. Yes. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you go extreme as mental illness, there is still stigma against it. And even, um, you know, nobody wants to hang out with somebody who's depressed. Nobody wants to hear your troubles. Um, and you know, obviously, yes, your, you know, your family, especially would, you know, they could be a shoulder to cry on, but 
um, obviously many people don't want to be that person or they don't feel relief from that or don't try that. You know, my nephew had made a couple little comments to his, you know, his roommates, his really good friends, but he never opened up to them either. So nobody knew um, how much he was hurting and struggling inside. And Ms. Teresa, the last question I have for you is, Mm -hmm. what advice would you offer to a person who is feeling suicidal, who is feeling very depressed, what offer, what advice would you offer to them uh, in terms of maybe how it could potentially affect their family or, or actions they could be doing at this very moment? Um, I can't necessarily answer that question, but I could answer the question in regards to what advice would I give a, a loved one of somebody? Because, um, they say it doesn't matter if you tell this person, you know, how much you love them or any of that. Um, according to the things that I've read, they say the number one way to try to deter somebody um, from feeling this way, from attempting suicide, is to make them feel needed. Um, it doesn't matter if you tell them you love them, you're going to miss them if this happens. It's it's they they need to feel needed that um, that they have to be there, you know, to help somebody out. Um, that they show that that's the number one way to help um, people not attempt it. Miss Kate Rees, want to thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your stories, and uh, I'm sure it's very helpful. Thank you so much. Sure, no problem, Ryan. Thank you. And that concludes part one of our part two series on suicide, understanding and healing. Coming up in part two, we are going to feature metaphysical healers and energy workers, Jeff Casper, Yona Brindis, grief expert, Carol Brody Fleet. She's fantastic. As well as our returning guest, Ms. Nancy Dannison, who actually experienced clinical death and came back. She'll give you the perspective of what it was like to actually be to die and come back and give you insights on suicide. You don't want to miss part two. Again, if you are feeling suicidal, please seek immediate medical attention. And again, the number to the National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. That is 1-800-273-8255. Thank you.